as the children are dismissed this morning, um, a mission partner we here have here at Friendship Community Church is called PRISM, not to be mixed up with being in prison. Um, and PRISM focuses on reaching international students. So here at Friendship Community Church, while we focus on the peoples who have yet to hear the gospel, um, we have partnered with PRISM. And this morning we have the treat of having Farshid Razai with us. Um, and earlier he shared his story of how the Lord drew him from Iran to faith in Jesus. So if we'd have read a few verses later there in Romans 10, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And that's the, the testimony of Farshid's life. And now as we sit beneath the teaching of the word, may that be the same for us, that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And good morning, brothers and sisters. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you graciously have uh, chosen to speak to us through your word. Um, Father, as we read and reflect on your words, we come to know you better. And by knowing you better, we know how to serve you better. And Father, this morning, um, as I preach your word, um, help me by your spirit um, to preach truthfully, clearly, and humbly. May I be forgotten at the end of the sermon, and only the truth revealed in your word remain in people's minds and hearts. And we pray all this for your glory and in your son's name. Amen. Well, there are multiple passages in the Bible that almost every single Christian knows by heart. John 3.16, Psalm 23, and of course, the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Whenever, um, wherever we as Christians want to talk about evangelism, that is the first passage that comes to our mind. Um, the problem with those familiar passages is that we have heard and read them so many times that we fail to pay attention to what they actually say. I have asked many Christians to tell me what the Great Commission passage is without looking at the Bible. Many of them say, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes I myself recite the passage for them. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I then ask them to tell me what word they did not say, or tell me the word that I had omitted. And they looked puzzled. Did any of you notice what word I did not mention from that passage? Well, the word is therefore. I think the reason may be that without that word, the sentence still makes sense. It does not need the word therefore. 
What the word therefore is there. In our normal conversation, we do not begin a sentence with therefore. Imagine talking to you, and the first thing I told you is that therefore I had to leave Iran. You would be puzzled. My sentence doesn't make sense. When the word therefore is used, we expect something should come before that. Something happened, therefore something else. And since we have this word in this passage, we should look at what immediately comes before this passage. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to, him, to, to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is commanding his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. But that is not like an ordinary person or a teacher or a prophet giving instructions to some people. A little bit of context for this passage will be helpful. You see, Jesus has died on the cross. His body was put in a tomb. The tomb is now empty because Jesus has been risen from the dead. And this passage comes after his resurrection. He now says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is an awe-inspiring statement. We have heard and read it so many times, but think about what that statement says. All authority on heaven and on earth. You see, this statement means that every single person and entity is subservient to Christ. All kings, caliphs, monarchs, presidents, senators, army generals, commanders, all of them. Every person who seems extremely powerful to you, earthly or otherwise, falls under the all-encompassing authority of Christ. That is the foundation for Great Commission. And this is why the word therefore is so crucial. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go. It also shows us that he as a person who has all authority, he is giving us commands that we should obey. He does not tell us that we are free to choose what we would like to do. He does not give us options. He commands us to do it. And if we know that we should obey what human authorities tell us, how much more should we obey the person who has all authority? Let us now examine the rest of this passage. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Again, in our normal conversation, when we think about evangelism, we think of engaging with non-Christians, sharing the gospel with them, and praying that God would work in their hearts so that they would come and put their faith in Christ. But notice that at the end of this process, what we have is a group of converts. Jesus didn't tell us to go and make converts of all nations. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. 
you see the Great Commission is not just about sharing the gospel with someone and seeing them becoming a Christian. It definitely involves that, but it is much more than that. Discipleship is not the outcome of a person's decision at a particular moment. Discipleship is a lifelong journey. In fact, Jesus unpacks what must follow after a person puts their trust in Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, once a person trusts in Christ as his Lord and Savior, they are to be baptized. Now, this baptism is an outward sign of an inner reality, which has already happened. The change that the Spirit has brought about in a person's heart. A spiritually dead person has been made alive. God has removed that person's heart of stone and has given him a heart of flesh. The baptism must be done in the name of the three persons of Trinity, because salvation is Trinitarian in nature. The Father's plan of salvation has been executed by the Son and has been applied to the believer through the Holy Spirit. What follows next is a lifetime journey of growth for a believer. Jesus says we must be teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, that is what the discipleship entails. Conversion is the first step. Discipleship follows from there. Can I ask all of you to close your eyes for a minute? I want you to think of a non-Christian person who has hurt you the most, who has made you extremely angry and upset, could be a non-Christian parent who puts you through a lot of hardship, a spouse who physically or emotionally abused you, a school or university classmate who bullied you, a close friend who broke your confidence and stabbed you in the back. A colleague who made every day at work so tough that you ended up quitting your job that you really liked. A politician who pushed the bill to allow abortion on demand at any point during pregnancy. Now, I want you to imagine that that very person walks this morning into the church. They sit a few chairs away from you, he listens to God's work being preached and becomes a Christian. That means that he or she would spend an eternity in heaven with God's loving presence. His or her sins have been fully paid for. He or she is now forgiven, and he or she is now your brother and sister in Christ, who will be with you for eternity. How does that make you feel? Angry? Frustrated? Sad? Do you feel that there is some sort of injustice being done? You can now open your eyes. Let me say this. If you felt angry, frustrated, or sad, if you felt that God should not really save that person, that it would be unfair for him to be in heaven, you would not have evangelized to someone like Apostle Paul. You would not even have welcomed him in the church, let alone allowing them to sit close to you. You would feel disgusted that a person like that is sitting so close to you. 
and you will be feeling angry that he is not going to be condemned for all that he or she has done to you, but actually would spend an eternity in heaven. Notice what Jesus says. Go and make disciples of all nations. Just in passing, this is nothing new. God's heart has always been for people from all the nations. As you saw in the Old Testament passage which was read in Genesis, even at the time of Abraham, God was thinking about other nations. As he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. In Malaysia, Buddhists, Hindus, and Christians are allowed to share their allowed to practice their faith, and they can go to their place of worship. But the law forbids them from evangelizing to Muslims. And there are different kinds of punishment imposed, varying from one state to another, including imprisonment and caning. The law allows Muslims to, pro to proselytize with no restrictions. And seeing how many of the Christian Malaysians are unwilling to share the gospel with Muslims, one of my mentors rightly said, when you refuse to share the gospel with Muslims because there is a law against it, it's like that you are basically telling Jesus, Jesus, I know you said you have all authority in heaven and on earth that has been given to you, but you forgot about Malaysia. You do not have authority here. This is a Malaysian government, the authority that we should obey. And the Malaysian authority has not been given to you. That's why we cannot share the gospel with Muslims. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. He does not say, go and make disciples of all nations, except in countries where it is illegal to do that. Nabil Qureshi, a famous convert from Islam, he said, the Christians who were around me never shared the gospel with me, and I never realized why. I concluded that there are only two options possible. Either they didn't believe that the gospel was true, or if they did, they didn't care that I was going to hell. Here in the U.S., according to the Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of a speech or of the press, or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. You see, having this freedom is a huge blessing that we should not take for granted. But the reality of daily life shows that in practice, many kind of those freedoms are either denied or restricted. We see public prayers being forbidden in schools. We see elementary students who are asked not to wear green or red for the Christmas party because it may offend Muslims. We see pastors ministering near abortion mills being threatened or even arrested by the police. In one video I recently watched, a police officer was harassing a pastor called Jeff Durbin for speaking outside a Planned Parenthood facility. 
Now, Jeff is clearly well-versed in the estate laws. He had copies of those laws with him. So when the police officer asked for his full name, he said, I'm not going to reply, because unless you are charging me with something, I'm not obligated to say my full name. He kept asking the police officer to just look at the text of the law and what he had been doing. And the police officer refused to even take a look at those laws. Are there any group of people that you personally exclude from hearing the gospel because of the possible repercussions? LGBTQ people? People asking for abortion on demand? Socialists? Muslims? Do you refrain from sharing the gospel with family members and friends because you do not want to damage your relationship? And then the last part of this passage. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus is assuring his disciples, which applies to us as well, that they will not be doing this great commission on their own. Jesus doesn't tell them what to do and then leave them alone to figure it out. He does not ask us to do it and then leave us alone so that we end up facing the punishment, hardship, or rejection, or even life-threatening situations on our own. If he had done that, it would have been a very difficult, painful, and scary and lonely time. We cannot handle that. This is why this last section is so comforting. The person who has all authority on heaven and on earth tells us what to do, and then he tells us that he would never leave or forsake us. The foundation for the Great Commission is the all-encompassing authority of Jesus. The extent of it is all nations, and the comfort and the reassurance that we have is what Jesus tells us. He is never-ending presence with us. Now, in my personal interactions with other Christians about evangelism, I have heard the following two statements. Number one, I do not share the gospel with people, but I show them love. Number two, I do not share the gospel with people, but I pray for them. Let us look at the first one. I do not share the gospel with people, and I show them love. Now, the people who say this, they usually think of love as feeding the hungry, helping the poor, providing medical services, provide humanitarian aid in the aftermath of natural disasters or wars, and give money to charities and similar things. Now, let us examine what happens to those that we help. Person A is very hungry. He has not been eating much during the last week. He may die out of hunger. You feed him not just once, but consistently. Because of your help, he gets to live for 20 more years. He is not a Christian. He dies. He goes to hell. Person B is very poor. He does not even have money, enough money to survive. And you give him money, not just once, but consistently. Because of your help, he gets to live for 10 more years. He is not a Christian. He dies. He goes to hell. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Showing people love in all these different forms is a good and noble thing for us to do as believers. But without the gospel, those acts of love just add few more years to their earthly and temporary lives. You see, love does not and cannot save people. Only the gospel can. You cannot replace sharing the gospel with acts of love. You see, anyone can do those kind of things. A Buddhist can feed the hungry. A Hindu can help the poor. A Muslim can help people who have lost their home. Even atheists could do those things. In fact, if you look at charity organizations around the world, you will see that some of them are run by atheists. But there is only one thing that none of them can do except Christians, and that is sharing the gospel. Let's look at the second statement. I do not share the gospel with people, but I pray for them. Well, prayer is a good and noble thing, and we must pray for the salvation of people. But prayer does not save people. Of course, God can save people through our prayers, but pr prayer cannot replace sharing the gospel. So should we pray for people's salvation? Absolutely. Can we refrain from sharing the gospel and instead just pray for them? Absolutely not. There is one more thing about prayer. You see, we read the book of Acts chapter 9 about how Paul was converted. There was no middleman. It was direct encounter with Jesus. We then conclude that we do not really need to share the gospel with people. We just pray that they too have a road to Damascus experience. And the same thing happens about Muslims. Some people who hear my testimony, they say that, see, in a Muslim country where Bible wasn't accessible and internet had not been available, God reached out to a Muslim through a newspaper article written in a popular Iranian newspaper. We do not need to share the gospel with Muslims. We just pray that the same thing would happen to others. My brothers and sisters, God can save every single individual the same way that he saved Apostle Paul. No middleman, direct encounter. But looking at a scripture and history makes us realize that their conversion was an exceptional case. People become Christians through the faithful proclamation and preaching of the gospel, of course, through the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. I'm sure some of you have heard about the Muslims in the Middle East who have had a dream or vision about Jesus. Again, I have heard Christians thinking in the same way. Let's just pray that more Muslims have those dreams and visions. Now, dreams and visions do not save people. If a dream or vision is genuine, the person is always led to God's word. Let me give you two real examples. One of my friends in Malaysia contacted me and said, there is this Iranian lady who has been coming to the church for a few months very regularly. And she had told them that she has had a dream about Jesus. So my friend asked me if I can just talk to her. The lady and I, we had a very long phone conversation, and I asked her a few questions. I said, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? And her response was to show us love. I started telling her that Jesus has died for our sins. I took her to Romans 3, 
and showed her that no one is good, not even one. She was shocked. No one is good? She had no idea what the gospel was. So I shared the gospel with her, and I was quoting a scripture so that she would not think these are just my opinion. At the end of our conversation, I told her, I'm not saying that you did, the dream and the vision that you had had never happened. I'm saying that dreams does not save you. It does not make you a Christian. Second example is again about Iranians. There was this Iranian pastor and his wife that they were driving on the road. They came to a gas station, and they see this man with long beard and a gun leaning against a tree. When they sit in the car, the woman tells her husband, I think you should go and give that man a Bible. He says, that man? She says, yes. <laughs> he gets out of the car, and after a few minutes comes back and starts driving. His wife looks at him and says, you did not really give him the Bible, did you? He says, no, I didn't. His wife lowers her head and prays, dear God, if on the day of judgment this man is sent to hell, may his blood be on my husband's head. <laughs> At that moment, the husband and wife started doing what married people sometimes do, which is a very friendly discussion. At the end of which, the husband says, if you want me dead, I will be dead. So they drive back to the gas station. He gets out of the car, walks to that man, gives him a Bible, and turns back. Immediately, he hears a thud. He turns back and sees that the man has collapsed. When the man becomes conscious again, they ask him, what happened to you? The man said, I do not live or work here. A couple of days ago, I had a dream where God told me that I should walk to this place and someone would come and give me the book of life. Now, that is a genuine dream, leading the man to God's word. Isn't our God amazing? He reaches people all around the world in this amazing ways, which we could have never even imagined. But he does that for some people in some parts of the world. It doesn't mean that we can just pray for the same experience to happen to other people, and that we can use it as a justification of not sharing the gospel with them. Now, don't take my word for it. Let us look at the New Testament passage which was read before the sermon. In Romans chapter 10, Apostle Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and just is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now pay close attention. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Notice that we have a chain of verbs here. Let's look at them in reverse. Sent, preached. Hear, believe, call, save. 
Christians must be sent to preach the gospel for people to hear who may come to believe so they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, just in case the readers fail to understand that very obvious point, Paul says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice, people doesn't, Paul does not say love so that they can be saved. He does not say pray so that they can be saved. He says preach so that they can hear, so that they will believe, so that they will call, so that they will be saved. Now notice in these two passages about um, the Great Commission, the evangelism comes as a command, as something to be obeyed. But are there other motivations for us that will spare us to reach out to people who are perishing without Christ? Are we supposed to share the gospel with others just because we have to? Is that one item on our checklist of being a Christian that needs to be ticked off? Are there any other reasons why we should do that? Well, the answer is yes. And I'll mention four. First one, we are to evangelize because of genuine compassion and love for the lost. Let me ask you a question. When you're in school, when you are in university, when you are in a restaurant, when you are at work, has it ever happened that you've looked at the people who are just passing by and you thought, each of these people will go to hell? and will be deprived of experiencing the grace and love of God for eternity because they do not trust in Christ. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever felt a heavy burden on your chest when you think of your loved ones who do not know Christ? Have you felt a similar burden when you think of other people? If your answer is no, can I encourage you to examine your heart? and why it is not filled to the brim with love and compassion for others. Is it because you are busy? Is it because it takes time and commitment? Is it because you have problem, enough problems of your own? When I was in Malaysia, because I could not have a legal job, I did not have colleagues, and my friends were all my church friends. So the only people I could share the gospel with were Uber drivers. I had 10 or 15 minutes in the car to interact with them. And one of my favorite things to do was getting Muslims to tell me I should share the gospel. I usually ask them if they love driving. And when someone says yes, I would say, that's great. If you love your job, every minute, if you don't love your job, every minute is like torture. But if you love what you do, it doesn't even feel like a job. You know? I love what I do, and let me tell you why. Imagine that you are sick, and you go to a doctor, and after some tests, the doctor tells you that you have a terminal disease. And at most, you have only two more months to live. There is not much thing that you can do about it. So as time approaches very close, one week before the, the anticipated moment, you hear about a cure. So you take that cure that was recently discovered, and you manage to get hold of that, and then the disease is completely gone. No health complication whatsoever. 
Will you keep that medication to yourself, or will you share it with others who have the same sickness? The driver would think for a while and said, we should share it with others. Then I said, we Christians, we believe that all human beings have a kind of disease, like a cancer, and it is called sin. And there is nothing that we can do about it except what Jesus has done for us on the cross. What Jesus has done is the cure for that universal problem. So now that I know that, should I keep the gospel to myself or I should go and share it with others? The Muslim driver would say, you should go and share it with others, not realizing that I just shared the gospel with him. <laughs> do you have compassion for people who do not know Christ because you yourself are thankful to him? Do you genuinely want to see the change and transformation that God has brought about in your life, in others as well? Do you love them? Number two, we are to evangelize because we get to experience an amazing miracle. Now, miracles, by definition, they are rare. If something happens every day, no matter how amazing it is, it will not be seen as a miracle. It will be just seen as a routine. All of us would love to witness a miracle. When we hear about amazing things happening in other people's lives, we wish we could experience that firsthand. And then in the scripture, we read about all these wonderful miracles that God did. Creation of everything out of nothing, the plagues in Egypt, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, and miracles of Jesus and his apostles. You see, we wish we were there to see them with our own eyes. Now, it is not guaranteed, but it is possible to see a miracle. When we share the gospel with people, and the Holy Spirit changes that person's heart and brings them to faith in Christ, we will witness a wonderful supernatural miracle. Think about it. A spiritually dead person, hostile, arrogant, self-centered, cruel, lying, promiscuous individual turns into a gentle, humble, loving, selfless, friendly, and godly person. A person who did not even want to hear the word God now cannot stop talking about him. An individual who was obsessed with always getting what he wanted now chooses to do what honors and pleases God, even when it comes at a cost. He has become a new person with new heart, new desires, new passion. His life has been so transformed that his family and even his closest friend cannot recognize him. His identity has been changed. He has gone from a wretched sinner in need of a grace to a blood-bought child of God. Isn't that a great motivation to tell people about Christ? Number three, we are to evangelize because it's a privilege. Remember what was said in terms of conversion of Apostle Paul. It was through a direct encounter with Jesus and no middle person. Now, we know that God is able to convert entire billions of people in the same way, but he has not done that. He has given us the responsibility and privilege of being his co-workers. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, we read, 
For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And this should blow our minds. The creator and the redeemer of us has allowed us, has invited us, has called us to be the means through which his word comes to people. You see, evangelism is not just about serving God. It is about working with God. Can you think of a greater honor? God using us, frail, weak, fallen, wretched, insignificant, little people in, the, in, in his work. And that should greatly humble us and fill our hearts with gratitude. Number four, we are to evangelize because of the glory of God. You see, as with all the things that we do as believers, the end goal is ultimately the glory of God. As we bring this wonderful message of the gospel of love and grace to people, God is glorified because it is him and him alone that can change a person's heart. We are the means. He is gracious, loving, and sovereign Lord. So what should we do in the light of all that was mentioned? Well, we must remember that God is the only one who can bring the change in people's heart. And that means we must be faithful and loving in sharing the gospel, but leave the result in his hands. And that makes evangelism much easier. You see, we are not expected to change people's heart. And so you do not need to travel to another country to have a mission field. Just go to your next-door neighbor. The mission field is right next to you. Two, do not refrain from sharing the gospel because it may offend people. Truth is always offensive. Gospel is always offensive. Can you imagine telling people that contrary to what they think, they are not good, they are wretched sinners, and that they are justly condemned to hell for eternity, and then see them with a big a smile coming, hugging you, and tell you how grateful they are. Of course they will be offended. Now, having said that, we should not add to that offense. Gospel is offensive enough. We should not let our ego, our tone, and our words add to that. Number three, do not download the whole Bible into people's head the first chance you get. If someone asks you a question about creation, please do not say, Bible tells us that God is the one who created everything. Actually, speaking of creation, human beings rejected God and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And God chose Noah and then Abraham and Moses who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And speaking of Moses, he chose Joshua to lead the second generation of Israelites into the Canaan. And don't forget that Jesus is always the answer. Repent and believe. <laughs> Sometimes one sentence is sufficient to plant a seed in that person's heart. And it may come to fruition many years later, and you may not even be alive to see that fruit. Do not be discouraged when you do not see fruit. Now, there are practical things that you can do in addition to being a witness to Christ. So I work for this organization called PRISM, which stands for Pittsburgh Region International Student Ministry. Um, in Pittsburgh, there are currently 13,000 international students. 
Uh, most of them are in Carnegie Mellon and Pitts University. So as God is graciously is bringing this huge mission field um, to Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, there are so many ways that we can reach out to international students. One good thing about them is that they are now away from their families and their countries, so they are not facing the same restrictions they have there here in the U.S. And there is this long time of three to five, even longer years, uh, for us to be able to build relationship with them. So one of the first things that um, PRISM does for new international students is what we call garage giveaway. Churches that are in touch with PRISM, they come and donate furniture to us. And then we sort all this furniture, and then one day, from morning till noon, we give this furniture for free to new international students. This year, that when we wanted to do that, 400 students signed up. Um, so just imagine, like 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., um, these 400 students came and they got furniture, and it was delivered to them at their doorstep. Now, this is a huge number. As the time continues, we hope that more and more of these people who are at the top of the funnel continue coming for PRISM activities. I want to highlight two of those um, activities that you can share in. One of them is that every other Friday, we have something called open house. Usually one church volunteers to bring food. So international, come, uh, international students come to, come to the uh, Belfield Presbyterian Church where PRISM office is. Uh, they all have dinner together. Then we have usually a group discussion or some games. And then we have about a 15-minute talk about one of the biblical themes. So every other Friday, one church volunteers to bring food, and then some volunteers come from that church, and they sit at different tables, helping with the discussion that goes around at that table. So that is one uh, great thing that you can be involved in um, reaching out to international students. The second one is a program that we call Connection we would put international students in touch with one local person. And there are three kinds of that happening. One is the English partner, if the student just wants to practice their English, so they are put in touch with an American. Second one is friendship, they just don't want to feel lonely while they are here. So we put them in touch with an American so that um, they can plan whatever they want to do with each other. And the third one is mentorship. If there's a young student who wants someone older um, to help them in making decisions. So once these people are put in touch with you, and uh, we have had up to 200 um, groups like that, um, if you, you just need to go on the website of prismpgh.org, and then you go to the connection program, and you put your details as a volunteer. You say, I want to look for a connection partner. And then um, one of my colleagues who is in charge of that will um, put you in touch with um, new international students. And that is a great opportunity that the, um, the new international student gets to know how Christians live their lives. Many of the many, we have many families who host students throughout holidays, whether it is Easter or Christmas or the New Year. 
um, an American family invites that student to come and stay with them. And more often than not, the next Sunday, they take the student to church. And so they get to experience um, being in a church service, uh, listening to these amazing songs being sung, and of course, the preaching of, of God's Word. So there are so many ways that you can um, be involved in reaching out to these people who, without the gospel, they are, they are perishing. If you have any questions about that after the service, please come and talk to me. I'm more than happy to uh, let you know what other, what other um, options are available in that, so that you become involved in that um, mission of reaching out to these international students. Um, another thing that you can do is that you can choose a person from your circle, whether it's a family member, friend, or colleague, and pray for their salvation every day. And if you have a small groups where you do Bible study, you can share that person's name with others so that the other people in the group can be praying for that person as well. So with, with PRISM, um, your collaboration can be in these couple of things, but there are other things, please come and talk to me. And uh, the last thing I want to say is that in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 9, this is what we read. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Let us ask and pray that God would do that, the same thing in our hearts. March on, brothers. March on, sisters. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. As we um, think and reflect about our own lives, we see um, someone who was completely helpless, um, unable even to contribute to our salvation even a tiny bit. Um, we received your grace. Uh, we experienced the love and grace that you have shown us. Um, as those who never deserved you or your love. And uh, you did this amazing thing in our lives. And uh, Father, we pray that you continuously remind us of that um, wonderful supernatural act that you did in our hearts. And as we um, think back about our old lives, um, we see the transformation that you, are, um, you have been creating in our, in our hearts and in us and giving us new desires and new passions. And Father, as we... Uh, remember how you worked in us. We pray that you remind us that um, every other human being like us is in need of that gospel. Uh, Father, we pray that you grant us multiple opportunities to uh, be in touch with people who are perishing without the gospel. And we see those opportunities as um, a God-given privilege um, to engage people in building relationship with them. And Father, please remind us not to take uh, not to treat people as our evangelism project, but as someone who is equally in need of the gospel, and that we are in that relationship for the long haul, rather than just being at the point of conversion. Uh, Father, we pray that you help us as we journey along people who are new believers in Christ in this uh, journey of growth in faith and, uh, and the discipleship. And uh, Father, we pray that you give us, each and every one of us sitting here, a renewed passion for the lost, um, Father, um, help us and remind us that uh, Great Commission should not 
turn into the greatest uh, omission of our lives. That uh, we do all the things that Christians do, but when it comes to share the gospel, um, we only think of that as the pastor's duty. Uh, Father, we pray that you will um, help us and um, show us um, how amazing it is that you, as our creator and redeemer, have given us this privilege that we can be uh, partners with you in this wonderful uh, message of the gospel of hope and love and grace. And Father, we pray that all the things that we do, all the things that we say, all the conversations that we have with people will ultimately be for your glory and your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.